0: Solid week in the NFL. We could recap some of the games. I'm um, going to get into that a little later. A couple things kind of ticked me off over the course of this past weekend. And the first thing that I want to get into, because I do want to talk a little basketball today, we're we'll going to talk a little football later on. Obviously, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unified America, just give the show a call if you want. 732-364-3598. Or uh, you can count on the Facebook For the Periscope feed, anything that's on your mind, like I said, in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. There was something about uh, Eric Reed and his comments after the Carolina game yesterday that I wanted to get a little more in detail with, and I promise over the course of the week I'll do that. But I want to think my thoughts out, I want to put them on paper, and I want to really get to the root of what I think a major problem that exists and the stuff that's going on with that. Of course, you got the comparisons, of course, to what Colin Kaepernick did by kneeling for the National Anthem. Eric Reed is continuing to do it. Uh, I'm going to discuss that a little later on in a week. But, you know, as we get set, Tuesday will be game one of the World Series. You got the Dodgers and the Red Sox appearing in a World Series for the first time in 102 years. And I, I, th- I really thought there's... A fascinating aspect of that because you got two teams that really are considered pillars for their respective leagues. The Red Sox, of course, they're not the Yankees because you know, they haven't had won as many American League pennants as the Yankees. They haven't won as many World Series as the Yankees. But if you're going to talk about another team that has had prominence, has won its share of World Series championships, and has represented the American League in many World Series, you would say that the Boston Red Sox fit that criteria. The Oakland slash Kansas City slash Philadelphia Athletics kind of fit the same bill. Teams that have been to a lot of World Series are a handful or enough and have won their share. And of course, if the Boston Red Sox happen to beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in a World Series this year in 2018, they will become just the fourth team to win nine or more. World Series. And I spoke about the other day, the fascinating thing, a couple fascinating things that I see about this upcoming World Series for teams that have had as much prominence as the Red Sox and the Dodgers have had. It's amazing that they're only appearing in a World Series against each other for the second time. You know, the Dodgers sit there with 21 National League pennants. If you want to count a couple in the 19th century, it'll be 23 six-time world series champions have obviously been in a lot of world series only once did they play the boston red sox and you think about the amount of times that the boston red sox have been in a world series a lot of it was early on in the 20th century and obviously they went in a gap they had a gap from 1918 when they won the world series to 1946 when they got back in got back a little less than 20 years later in 1967, then again in 1975, 1986, before going on their recent World Series winning spree, winning in 2004, 2007, and 2013. And of course, if they win this year, it'll be their fourth World Series championship in the past 15 years. Because I am good at three things. Fighting, screwing, and talking baseball. baseball. He got the discussion about the possibility of who is going to start game one for the Los Angeles Dodgers. It, you figure it would be Clayton Kershaw. He's up and ready to pitch, remember, in the deciding seventh game against the Milwaukee Brewers. He pitched the ninth inning. He struck out two batters, closing out the Milwaukee Brewers, and leading the Dodgers to their 22nd or 24th, depending on the way you look at it. pennant internationally but it would be intriguing and i've said this a couple times it would be pretty cool to see clayton kershaw matched up against david price in perhaps a game two type of scenario now listen price is coming off of his best postseason performance so there's no doubt about it there is kershaw who obviously had a good performance in his game five game closed out game six helping the Dodgers win the uh, the pennant, so I think you could talk about the potential that both of these guys' issues that people have said, and remember, people are going to continue to come after, and probably not in a, in a vehement sense, trying, probably not trying to cause blood or make a huge deal about it. But Clayton Kershaw is going to be known as a pitcher that struggles in the postseason. Now, and I do think that you know David Price, who probably has to deal with it on a lesser extent. Though his problems in a postseason are certainly more substantial. You know, to be 0-9, and nine, to not win a decision as a starting pitcher until your 10th game, I think is a big deal. Obviously, his six shutout innings, his performance in Game 5, benefit the Red Sox and David Price because obviously the Red Sox want to get the most out of their star pitcher and a guy that is certainly from a financial standpoint being very well compensated and being treated as if he is the ace on that staff. Now, the Red Sox have a series of pitchers who you could consider aces, certainly led by Chris Sale. Rick Porcellos won a Cy Young before, right? Nathan Evaldi, his performance in a postseason has probably been the best out of anybody on that Boston Red Sox staff. Now, nobody's going to look at Nathan Evaldi, and confuse him with an ace. He's a guy that's going to be a free agent, and I'm sure is going to get a pretty good contract when it comes to being signed by somebody in the offseason. A handful of very good teams are going to say, you know what, I think we're going to be better off if we add Nathan Ivaldi to the mix. I think he'd be a good fit for the Yankees. I think he'd be a good fit for the Dodgers. He'd be a good fit for a series of teams that are looking for a legitimate number two or number three pitcher. And I'm not saying Avaldi is going to become a Cy Young candidate year in and year out. But I, I do think that it, it is worth noting that years ago, when he first came up in a Los Angeles Dodgers organization and was traded from the Dodgers to the Miami Marlins, the thought was is that this guy had top-shelf stuff to potentially be a number one. Of course, he ended up getting traded to the Yankees, probably because the Yankees believed some of that hype. And obviously having a Tommy John surgery, having to sign the deal he did with the Tampa Bay Rays, obviously a two-year guaranteed contract. One year was going to be a lost season, and the second year he ends up getting some worth, pitched well, gets traded to the Red Sox. And it's, all, it's all pretty interesting how it's going to turn out. But amongst things that kind of bothered me this weekend, and unfortunately I'm not going to be able to get into every single one of them today, I'm going to get into a handful, and I promise I'm going to at least cover three of the major issues that i had with this weekend the first one is just kind of the the finishing touch or maybe the icing on the cake when it comes to the comments that we always hear when a baseball fan or a football fan or i'll throw basketball and hockey in there as well any person that considers himself a legitimate sports fan wants to have a cop out and basically just be like all right." I don't want to put any pressure on my team so i'm going to go to this narrative i'm going to go to this card i'm going to go to this cop out and continue to maybe make more into it than it really is and a problem that i have with sports teams is the fan either wants a championship or they want to know that the team is building towards a championship it doesn't want in some cases for it to even matter if they're close but the selling of younger players I in baseball and hockey a farm system to be developing all these good young players that you never seen yet and at some point are gonna turn the team around and allow them to turn the corner and become a championship year a championship team for years upon years and it's a narrative that to me is just getting old and I listened to it again this weekend, and it was actually a mention of a a couple of different teams, a couple of different teams that have not had success in a while, and I'll throw one of them out there because it it was the New York Mets, and the thought that you may want to just get rid of everybody that's good and just bring in young players. And then the other one is continuously back in, onto this mike trout being the best player in baseball it's a travesty for major league baseball that mike trout is not on a good team and if the los angeles angels of anaheim are not gonna win then they need to trade mike trout and i'm gonna start on a trout thing for a second because this is really the part of it that bothers me you're gonna trade mike trout and i don't care if you traded mike trout three years ago or you trade mike trout three years into the future i would make a bet That in either case, Mike Trout is going to be the best player in baseball. He was three years ago. He was this past season. And I understand there's other players that are up and coming that are in the mix. There's probably more people, more players that are in competition with Mike Trout for being the best overall player in Major League Baseball. But the truth is... The numbers that this guy puts up, the consistency that this guy puts up, there's no doubt that this is the best player in all Major League Baseball, likely will be next year, likely will be in two years, and likely will probably be the best player in Major League Baseball in three years. So here is my message for anybody that wants to see the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim trade Mike Trout. Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm gonna to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly firestorm upon you. You're gonna to have to call the United Nations to get a binding resolution to keep me from destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, mother. I will massacre you. I will you up. So those that want to see Mike Trout traded to a better team probably have interest when it comes to fantasy sports, or maybe they just root for a good team and would love to have Mike Trout on their team. There's 30 teams in Major League Baseball, including the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, that would love to have Mike Trout on their team, regardless of where they sit in the standings. But the thought being that you could trade Mike Trout and get anything better than Mike Trout in return. And and I don't care what kind of Tag you put on an individual prospect. I don't care if it's the number one player selected in any particular draft. I don't care if this player is being compared to the next whatever. You're not getting in a trade for Mike Trout the equivalent value of Mike Trout. So if you're the Angels, why the heck would you even think about making that kind of trade? And the same thing goes with the New York Mets. If the goal is to get younger, Why would you settle for trading Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, or anybody else for less than what market value would be? There are teams that are selling players off because they've quit, and I've used this word quit, and I don't think quitting under any circumstances is a positive experience for any fan. Any fan that has to deal with, and I'm not going to use the word rebuild, I'm going to use the word quit, If, if you have to deal with a quit as a fan... It's frustrating. It makes you not want to watch the games on TV. Surely doesn't make you want to show up and watch the games at the ballpark. It almost makes you not want to pay attention to a lot of what's going on. But we continue to get sold on prospects. We continue to get sold on the thought that the players that are coming in to an individual organization or joining a certain team are younger and have upside. But tell that to a fan of the Chicago White Sox right now. And I'm not going to knock the White Sox to a point where I say that there's no hope, that they're in trouble, that their rebuild is not going anywhere. But I will say, under no circumstances does Yoan Moncada and Michael Kuppish equal the value of Chris Sell. Now, you could say at the time that they made a very good trade because they got two elite prospects, Moncada, who at the time was considered one of the best prospects in all Major League Baseball. He's not anymore, and he's got a long way to go if he's going to prove himself as a legitimate Major League regular, let alone being one of the stars of the game. So if you want to set that up and say, hey, you know, you in some cases teams have, you know, top players and decide to sell off and quit and rebuild. Not only is there no guarantee that you're going to get equal value in return, which you're almost likely to not, there is doubt whether you're going to get anything that you're going to be able to build and use as the foundation for your team going forward. So once again, you're going to watch the rich teams in, in this case, baseball, get richer because they're going to prey off of teams that have sold out on this silly narrative that if you just quit and rebuild and get rid of all of your players, all your good, talented players, you're going to all of a sudden get these players that are going to be an influx of youth and all of a sudden turn it around. How about if you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates? Because the Pittsburgh Pirates, in the early part of the 90s, had a legitimate team led by manager Jim Leland Obviously, had Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla and Doug Drabeck and Andy Van Slyke, Jay Bell, Jose Lean in the middle infield, Jeff King, you know, Bill Landrum, Stan Belinda pitching at the end of the game, John Smiley. You know, then the amount of quality players that that team had from 1989 to 1992, and going from 1992 into 1993, it was an opportunity. It was an opportunity that, by the way, took a little time to get to because the Pirates were nothing from the last time that they won a World Series championship in 1979. They struggled for a series of years. They finally built things up through the draft and brought in some really good players. Of course, Barry Bonds, who later becomes an immortal player. And they had their opportunity in 1991, 1992, 1993. And I'm sorry, 1991 and 92. Let me make sure I get my years right. Europe, you've died! You are like, all the way through to your core. So, they win the division in the National League for those three years. Things don't work out. They don't get past the League Championship Series. They don't get a chance to play in a World Series. Guys like Bonds and Bonilla become free agents. And the next thing you know, the Pirates set themselves up for a rebuild. A rebuild that doesn't last two years. It doesn't last five years. It doesn't last ten years. It lasts 20 years before they get themselves back to the the position where they could consider themselves a playoff team and how does it feel how did it feel to be a pittsburgh pirates fan over that time to wait for a rebuild and a quit a legitimate quit where this organization could have cared less about bringing any legitimate talent in certainly didn't want to pay for it didn't want to take the time or maybe wanted to take the time and just couldn't do it from point of develop, developing players but they were bad for 20 years. They got themselves in the postseason a couple years after that. And look at it. They're rebuilding themselves again. Now, this isn't a rebuild that's as significant as what they did 20 years ago. But what did a Pittsburgh Pirates fan get out of it? 20 years of quit for a couple playoff appearances. And then they have to strip it back down, be weak potentially for 2019, though there is some hope. I like the Pirates team coming in 2019 better than I like the Pirates team of, let's say, I don't know, 2000 or 1996. But it still doesn't send the right message. And if you look at a team like the Kansas City Royals, they their fans are happy because it may have took forever, but they got themselves a World Series championship. It took them 20 years to get competitive but at least they got to a World Series in 2014 and won a World Series in 2015. But it still took a long time. And the Houston Astros, who are being used as the model for build your team after them, I think you have to put in the proper context of exactly what was going on in that organization in 2009, 2010. From the days of you know Jeff Bagwell retiring after the 2005 season to Biggio and Berkman, and the top players on that team breaking down and moving on into tertiary roles of their career. It was time to get an influx of young players into the Houston Astros organization. Now, it may not have had to be as drastic of a rebuild as they decided to do, but they didn't trade any players that were considered stars of the game at the time. Roy Oswalt still had something left, obviously showed it, For the the Philadelphia Phillies. But what I look at is how. How could it possibly be. That the Houston Astros were giving away really good players. To get little or nothing in return. That wasn't the case here. So the comparison I'm making from that. Oswalt a little bit over the hill. A little bit in the secondary part of his career. Nets the Astros back Something, and then they invest in the draft, and they invest in the scouting and player development, and they get themselves to a point where we're at a World Series championship. Now, if the Angels did this with Mike Trout, it'll be asinine to trade Mike Trout for anything. There's no way you'd get anything close to what the value would be. Same thing with the Mets with trading Jacob DeGrom or trading Noah Syndergaard. You you could trade them, sure. There's plenty of teams that could benefit from having those guys. But you're not, by any stretch of the imagination, guaranteeing that you're going to get anything back that you're going to be able to use, let alone players that are up at that level. And like I said, look back at some players that were traded. Look back at some players that have moved over the last several off-seasons. Who has gotten the better of the deal? In most cases, it's the team that acquired the big player as opposed to the team that ended up getting those quote-unquote prospects just a reminder that castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown so of course if you followed the nba over the course of this weekend you saw the i guess big fight and and, and listen i understand why why certain things get the attention that it ends up getting uh, you know a brawl or an altercation on a court in the nba Used to be something we saw fairly often. If you remember the days of, you know, the bad the, the bad boys and the Detroit Pistons and guys like Rick Mahorn and Bill Laimbeer getting in people's faces every game with the intention of drawing some sort of altercation. Of course, you had the NBA changing things in the 1990s where they made it an automatic suspension if anybody leaves during a fight or during an altercation. So, all these things are, you know, legit as we sit in the game as it sits in 2018. Of course, Ray John Rondo getting into it with Chris Paul. Of course, it's hard unless you were sitting courtside to see exactly which, what ignited that thing. But it seemed like, you know, James Harden going in for what is kind of a James Harden type of move. Lowering his head to get to the basket. Upset Brandon Ingram. He didn't like the call. And then you see the scuffle between Rondo and Chris Paul and, of course, Brandon Ingram being involved in it, too. I look at Ray John Rondo, and he's a a veteran player of many, many years now in the NBA. Came up with the Boston Celtics, but also had a little bit of a path to get himself to the NBA. Was a draft pick that was traded several times and ended up having to play in the NBA's G League, which, of course, we talked about this past Friday. He ends up getting a chance with the Boston Celtics. He performs. Becomes a little bit legitimate all-star. Helps the Boston Celtics win an NBA championship. And then all of a sudden, just kind of drops off. The Boston Celtics trade him to the Dallas Mavericks in a you know salary cap type of maneuver, which gave the Celtics some expiring contracts. Rondo, after that, goes to Sacramento. He goes to the Chicago Bulls, he ends up playing for the New Orleans Pelicans last year. And really, it wasn't until last year where the casual NBA fan would have even had any idea that Rajon Rondo was still playing in the NBA. But of course, he's part of the recruitment team, right, of LeBron James as he's out there in Los Angeles. And James, of course is hoping to win long-term, but certainly wants to get as much as he can over a new season and a new team, bringing in his type of players. So Rondo, all of a sudden, after all these years, after being pretty much a one that was battling against LeBron James, all of a sudden he becomes a LeBron James guy. And you know what? What best way to prove that you're a LeBron James guy than going after one of the top players on one of the other teams? Now I will say, and I'll bounce right off of this point after I'm done making it. You know, LeBron James obviously has some sort of continuity with Chris Paul. There's no hatred there. You saw LeBron James pulling Chris Paul away, as if they they have some sort of closeness. This wasn't the rivalry fights of the 1980s where Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were trying to get at each other. Michael Jordan, you know, all the top players in the NBA hated each other. We know 2018 other teams. Love each other. Because you never know when you're going to be playing with that player again. And that athlete that spent their entire career with one organization is no longer the case. Players switch teams all the time. So why would you burn bridges, per se, when it comes to other, you know, other teams potentially being interested in you and maybe some grudges. You got the Lance, Steven, LeBron James, Lance Stevenson, LeBron James situation where you got two players that didn't necessarily like each other. Now they're unified with the Lakers. And also, you know, as you see, Stevenson is kind of one of James's recruits in L.A. to try to get that team turned around. Ray John Rondo. Hey, maybe he's happy that LeBron James thought enough of him to want him to be on his team. And he's trying to prove something. He's trying to prove something to the point where he could go back to the year of 1994 in the playoffs with the Knicks and the Chicago Bulls, and he got JoJo English getting into it with Derek Harper. Getting into it with Derek Harper with the hope that people will remember JoJo English. And maybe Michael Jordan will say, look at JoJo English, man, 12th man on my bench guy that may not have a ton of value to this team is willing to scrap it up. Look at him go. Ray John Rondo kind of did that the other day. And the problem that I have with what Ray John Rondo did is the fact that he probably didn't have to. He doesn't have to prove himself to LeBron James. You know what he can prove himself by doing? Continuing to perform on the court. He's had a couple good games. He's in the starting lineup. He's a very good complimentary piece to LeBron James with the Los Angeles Lakers. So he should let his performance on a court do the talking. He doesn't need to man up and be this big, tough guy and prove to LeBron James that he really cares about Laker basketball because he's got to mix it up with a star on another team. And he's also mixing it up with a star on another team because his star has fallen to a point where nobody even knows who he is anymore. Like I said, the casual NBA fan. Doesn't even know that Rajon Rondo was still playing until that fight the other day. It's like the you know the Cleveland Indians. Oh man, it's a, it's amazing that this person's still in the league. And it's almost like Rajon Rondo had to prove to the casual basketball fan that he was still in the NBA. Embarrassing on all accounts. Even more embarrassing the fact that you got you know Rondo's girlfriend going after Chris Paul's wife in the crowd. It's amazing when you look at sports like this and it, it it frustrates me because the the thought of what happens on the court or on the field in other sports has to take second fiddle has to become, you know, almost tertiary to the sideshow nonsense that you see Now, there's people that are going to write a story and make a big deal about it and spend 20 minutes on talk shows talking about players, wives, and girlfriends fighting with each other because that's what a good part of the general public wants to see. They want to see gossip and slander. They want the soap opera. They want the sideshow. You know, shame on you if you're watching a game between the Houston Rockets and the Los Angeles Lakers and you actually want to see some basketball. The sideshows are making the sports by themselves become a joke. Authorized disclaimer in there, this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So, as a Titans fan, I'm watching the end of the Titans Chargers game from London. Obviously, still early in the morning, still before any of the 1 o'clock NFL games have started. And you got a team driving down the field within the last minute. And you got. Marcus Mariota leading the team to what looked like it should have been a game-tying touchdown with 31 seconds to go in a game. The thought process is always there since the game has changed, since it's not just a standard after a touchdown. You kick the extra point. Since the NFL has gone college football rules, and now the two-point conversion is a legitimate part of the National Football League, there's always that option that a coach or team can decide to go for the two-point conversion at any time. A lot of coaches will stick, hey, if you're down by two, yes, you need two points, you're going to go for it. If it's to tie a game, you'll take the one point, and you'll settle for the tie. Now, obviously, the changes with the field goal kicking and the extra points being moved back, makes it not as much of a sure thing that the place kicker is going to simply add that extra point. You had a game that was decided yesterday by a missed extra point by one of the better kickers in the entire NFL, in Justin Tucker. You had the Saints winning by a point because the extra point that would have tied the game was missed. So it's always going to be a discussion whether you feel... Enough in your kicker. Maybe a kicker's struggling. Maybe he's missed a couple extra points, and you don't think that that simple PAT is a sure thing. You had a situation with the Rams a couple of weeks ago when Greg Zerline got hurt. If your kicker gets hurt mid-game, how much do you trust your punter or anybody else to be able to put the ball through the uprights? It's not a sure thing for a regular NFL kicker, let alone somebody that doesn't do that regularly. So it's understanding that you may, hey, you score a touchdown, you got six points, let's go for two, and let's get to eight. So there's exceptions to the rule all the time. But obviously one of the cardinal rules in the NFL, if you have an option to go for one or go for two, you go for one within the last minute of the game when you're looking to tie it. When that score, that touchdown that you get brings you to within that one point, and all you need is to put the ball through the uprights, with the PAT to tie the game, that's usually what you do. Mike Frable, very good football mind, obviously comes out of the pedigree of the New England Patriots. He worked with Urban Meyer at Ohio State. He's got a ton of experience in the sport. I really feel he's going to be a good NFL head coach. If you go for two in that spot, you better not mess it up. You better have a play that has been planned and gone over hundreds and hundreds of times It's going to be the Art Williams play, you know, the guy that created Term Life Insurance, where you talk about his days as an old football coach, probably has some of the most inspirational videos that you'll ever see. But he talked about writing up the greatest plays, that there's no way that these plays would ever be stopped. And the only person that could screw these plays up is you. And somebody on the Tennessee Titans team, whether it was a block, whether it was a bad throw by Marcus Mariota, screwed up what should have been that perfect play. Because if it wasn't for that perfect play, there would be no reason to go for two when you're down one after you just scored a touchdown. I'm all about innovation. I'm all about taking chances. That's a spot that, under no circumstance, should have not gone the Tennessee Titans way. That was an absolute terrible job. And you're talking about a game that if they won, which there's no guarantee they they would have won if they tied it, you'll likely go to overtime, and it's probably a 50-50 chance. Or maybe you want to say it's a 40-40-20 chance in regards to a tie in the National Football League. We've seen her share probably too many ties over the last couple years. Of course, we're going to see more now that the overtime period is just 10 minutes. But to get that game into overtime, Gives yourself a chance to win that game and to get to four and three. Now the Titans are sitting there at three and four, and you're looking at the Houston Texans, you're looking at the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Colts are still struggling. Yes, it's anybody's division, but you may go back when it when you're sitting there at eight wins or nine wins or ten wins. And knowing that you needed one more to get where you needed to go to win a division, to potentially win a wild card spot. And you look at a game like that where you let go on just a whim or a thought that you were going to go for two in that spot. Terrible job. Last thing I want to talk about with the two-point conversion. There was a story I was reading, and it got a little bit of a negative review, and I get it. I understand it. But when I think of the implementation of the two-point conversion and the way it's set with the field goal kick for the point after being moved back. I'm surprised there there aren't more fakes when it comes to setting yourself up, lined up to kick that extra point, and maybe work on a couple different plays in practice. I don't know. I mean, are there certain things where you maybe are used to having a guy who, yes, they're blocking, but very often gets off the line of scrimmage, and then you may test them getting off the line of scrimmage a couple more times. Maybe he gets a little further. Maybe he moves a little bit quicker. Maybe that defense as they're setting up for the simple point-after-touchdown kick is wondering why this guy is running off by himself after every play when they are kicking the extra point. Now you could sense, all right, if nobody's going to block him, well, maybe one time you just snap the ball directly to the holder and shuttle him the ball. But I'm surprised more teams don't try to fake the extra point and go for the two-point conversion. Now, I understand it's harder to do. You're talking about lining up if you want to from the two-yard line and being asked to get two yards for two points. Now, all of a sudden, you're moving back to the 15. You're asking to get 15 yards for two points or just simply kick the ball through the upright to get one point. But I'm just surprised it doesn't happen more often. And we have enough innovative minds in the sport of football that understand the game and are willing to try different things. And I would have thought if I was the Tennessee Titans, maybe, and maybe I would have felt a little better about this if this is the way that it worked out. You line up for the extra point, and then you try a fake. You try one of those plays that you worked on in practice a couple times. You try a play that you feel is as flaw-free as possible, and you use it to win a game in that spot. That would be a great way to win a game. Obviously, in this case, going for two and having a play not work out that way was just a terrible way to lose the game. But think about the other side. Think of that fake extra point where the guy maybe shuttles the ball off to the guy that's coming off the line of scrimmage. He gets in the end zone and you win a game by one point on a fake extra point. I could at least deal with that extra point. That fake extra point not working, but I can't deal with a failed two-point conversion, especially in a game that could cost them the rest of the season. A little bit of a recap from the show today. We started, started out by talking about a little baseball with the playoffs, but most importantly about teams that are looking to rebuild. And there's a difference between the word rebuild and quit. Quit means you're just shopping players off to anybody for any price, And the team on the other side knows that they're going to be able to take advantage and get good players for very little value. And certainly if you're dealing with a Jacob deGrom or a position of strength of a Mike Trout, you're never going to get that equivalence in a trade. And it has to be factored in. There's ways to rebuild with those players there. Or maybe wait for the time to be a little bit better to move them than just a team that's simply going to look to get a Cy Young and an MVP at a cheap price. Next thing we talked about today is Ray John Rondo trying to draw attention to himself. Maybe he says, hey, this is my moment. I could get national attention. He's forgot it's played in the NBA. Sure has not been noticed in the NBA for about five years. Is he trying to have his JoJo English moment? Elaborated a little more about that earlier. If you missed it, it'll be up on JohnPielli.com. Finally, the two-point conversion with the point after touchdown being moved back, obviously it's a little bit more difficult to perform a fake. We've obviously seen less fakes, probably none that I can remember as far as extra point fakes. Maybe there's been a couple bad snaps and stuff like that, but I haven't seen an actual point after touchdown fake And, of course, in the situation with the Titans and the Los Angeles Chargers yesterday from London, I would have rather have seen a botched, fake extra point than to see a two-point conversion that failed in that spot. And that game could very well cost the Titans a chance at a wild-card spot or a chance at a division title later on in the season. Once again, this is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Wishes Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Glad to be with you, as always. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.